You're listening to God at a Distance, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we discuss how to move through the fear that keeps us distanced from God in order to pursue deeper friendship with Him. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. back into the God at a Distance series. This whole series is about various forms of fear that force distance in our relationship with God. And so to start this afternoon, I want to extend to you what might feel like um, a rather uncomfortable invitation, but it's a safe place, and so just go with me on this. I want you to recall a time in your life when you experienced the sting of rejection in some way. So think about a time in your life that you felt the sting of rejection in some way. So it could have been a parent that abandoned you as a child, could be a spouse that did the same, could be something that is very painful but maybe not quite as life-altering, but maybe you asked someone out on a date at some point and they said no. That's You never forget that feeling, that's for sure. Maybe you applied for a job at some point, and that job ended up going to a different candidate. Maybe you wanted to be on a team, and you didn't make that team. Maybe you had a friend that you thought had your back and was a safe place for you, and they eventually betrayed you and turned their back on you. So I want you to just call to mind a time in your life when you have experienced the sting of rejection. And I want you to really try to connect with the pain of that experience, and then I want you to consider this sentence. Few things make us more reticent to entrust ourselves to another like the sting of a prior rejection. Few things make us more reticent to entrust ourselves to another like the sting of a prior rejection. Now, here's why that's true. The pain and the shame that accompany rejection stick with us. It's like it hardwires to the soul. And that's why, even in this moment, some of these experiences of rejection, they could have happened to you years and years and years ago. And my guess is it doesn't take too much work for the pain of that to resurface inside of you. Rejection has staying power in our lives. And because pain remains acute from that within us, it makes us reticent to trust people in the future. Now, I've had plenty of experiences of rejection in my life, but I was thinking this week about a lighter one that happened a few years ago. Uh, Some of you know this, some of you don't. In 2017, I published a book on sermon preparation. It's really riveting stuff. And uh, it's sold about as well as you would imagine a book on sermon preparation would. It's called Eight Hours or Less. Now, one of the final stages of publishing is endorsement. And so you reach out to other people that are in a similar field that also have some kind of voice and platform, and you ask them to read what you've written, and then hopefully they will endorse that book, and it helps raise credibility, especially with newer authors like me. And so I reached out to five or six people. All of them gladly agreed, all except one. 
There was this one, one guy, I didn't know him super well, I just had kind of a loose connection with him, but I respected him. I was trying to get a very diverse, broad group of other pastors and teachers to endorse this book. And so I'd, I had asked if he would be willing to, and he said that he wanted to read a pre-publication before he endorsed it, which is super fair. I would never endorse a book I hadn't read. And so I sent the pre-pub off to him, and, uh, and he emailed me back, and he goes, uh, I'm, I don't want to endorse this. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Had he, if I, if I texted him and I was like, hey, I wrote a book, would love if you endorse it. And he's like, I'm really busy. I can't do that right now. No big deal. I would have been totally fine with that. It stung because I sent him the book. He read said book and then said no. Which when you create something, many of you in our church are creative. So it could be anything. It could be any piece of art. You write a song, a poem, anything at all. When you release that into the world in any sort of way, it's a very vulnerable act, right? It feels like just releasing a child into the world. You put so much work into it, you put it out, you want it to be helpful, and so that rejection, when he read, he's like, mm, hard pass. It felt very, very personal because it was tied so closely to me. Now, here's the problem. Rejection hurts our ability to trust in relationship in general. It's not like it just hurts our ability to trust the person that rejected us. Rejection impacts our ability to trust people in general. It causes us to be very, very skeptical of everyone. We're just kind of always way like, when is this person going to reject on me or reject me? When is this person going to turn on me? When is this going to end up the way that that other relationship ended up. So it makes us very, very reticent to trust in general. And many of us come to relationship with God carrying some degree of fear of being rejected by him. And I find that that fear of rejection when it comes to God is magnified when a person lives with a deep sense of unworthiness. So maybe you carry something inside of you because of experiences that you have had in the past, that you just feel, in general, you are unworthy of being loved and accepted by anyone, then that fear of rejection by God tends to be significantly magnified in your life. And so the question is, what do we do with this? And so this afternoon, what I want to do is I want to bring this fear of rejection to the Scriptures, and I want to look at Jesus' response to and his treatment of a man who was objectively unworthy of welcome. And so this afternoon, we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about the fear of rejection. And if you have a Bible uh, or an app that you like to read on, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If you grew up in church, this is going to be a story that is very similar or very familiar to you. You might have even grown up singing a song that was attached to this. If that triggers any PTSD in some of you, I apologize. It's in the Bible, and we're not going to sing the song together today, okay? But this is the story about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. The laughter's from the church kids, okay? Those of you that aren't nerds are like, what is a wee little man? So it's fine. Don't worry about it. So this story really doesn't require a a bunch of context. It's a really isolated, contained story. And so the only thing you really need to know is that Jesus is probably toward the latter half of his earthly ministry. With each day that goes by, with each week that goes by, with each month that progresses, Jesus is closer to the fate that awaited him in Jerusalem. 
his arrest, betrayal, crucifixion, and eventual resurrection. But Jesus is not done with the ministry in front of him. And so we find Jesus here in Luke 19, uh, making his way from one place to another where he has an encounter with this man named Zacchaeus. So look with me. If you don't have a Bible, the text is going to be up on the screen. This is Luke 19. Let's jump into verse 1. It said, He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So there are three very critical details in this story about this man named Zacchaeus. This is the only place that we hear anything about him, but we have three very important details about him, each of which would have served as a significant obstacle to him being able to have a relationship with Jesus. So we learn three things. Number one, we learn that he was a chief tax collector. We learn that he was rich, and we learn that he was short. And each of those does matter. So the first thing that we learn about him is that he was a chief tax collector. Many of you probably know this, but if you don't, at this time in the first century, Jerusalem was under foreign occupation. Rome had all the authority in Jerusalem at this time. And as foreign oppressors are prone to do, they taxed the people who lived in that city to continue to help to fund and to grow Rome's empire. Now, what was especially sick about this process is that they employed other Jewish people to tax their own family and friends and loved ones. And that is who Zacchaeus was. So you need to understand the reason why when you read the New Testament and so often people talk about sinners and tax collectors, there was almost no group of people more hated in this culture than tax collectors because they were viewed as traitors. Imagine living in a place that was occupied wrongly by a foreign power And they not only are putting oppressive taxes on us, but they're using you and I to tax one another. The people that agreed to that for their own profit and gain would have been looked down on in a significant way, and Zacchaeus was. And the second detail that's important is that Zacchaeus was rich. Now, here's how you got rich as a tax collector. It's not because you were paid awesome. It's because let's say that you were supposed to be taxed. I'm not good at math, so we're going to use simple numbers. Let's say you were supposed to be taxed $7. As a tax collector, you go, oh, the tax is $10. And that $3 difference went in your pocket. And so that is who Zacchaeus was. Not only was he a tax collector and a trader, but he was a thief who was robbing his own people. And so as you can imagine, nobody liked Zacchaeus. And the point of these details and the reason that Luke put them in the story is so that we would understand that nothing about Zacchaeus points to him being welcomed by Jesus. Not his lifestyle, not his character, not his integrity. If anything, if we were there and a part of that crowd, we would have wanted to see Zacchaeus' life ruined. And we would have wanted to see him rejected by Jesus. And if those first two details about Zacchaeus are not enough, the text also tells us that he was a short man. And so, there's this huge crowd, as there often was around Jesus at this time, and Danny DeVito-sized Zacchaeus couldn't see over all of these people. And so, driven by his own curiosity, look at what happens. Look at verse 4. 
So, and do, do picture, every time you hear Zacchaeus' name, picture Danny DeVito. He's the perfect Zacchaeus. If I was, if I was casting a movie, Danny DeVito Zacchaeus every time, okay? So just picture him. So, running on ahead, Zacchaeus climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now, Zacchaeus might have been a thieving little troll, but he was nothing if not a problem solver. Because as his view and vision of Jesus is obstructed, he runs and he finds a sycamore tree, which if you've never seen, looks very similar to an oak tree. So it has a short base, big, wide branches, making it a really good tree for him to climb. And so he climbs up this tree, and here's what's most significant in these details. Jesus stops, he sees Zacchaeus, and he invites him to come down, invites himself over to stay with Zacchaeus. And so I want you to notice in these details that Jesus sought Zacchaeus out, and he knew Zacchaeus' name. The text makes it pretty evident. They had no prior knowledge of one another. They had no prior relationship, but Jesus knew who he was. And so just try to imagine the shock that Zacchaeus must have felt in this, this moment. Because for Jesus to say, hey, Zacchaeus, come, come down. It's necessary today for me to come and to stay at your house. This would have blown his mind. Because to come into someone's home, for, for a home to be opened to another, it signified acceptance. It signified love. It signified friendship. Three things that Zacchaeus never would have experienced with anyone else in that crowd. And so this is, if you were there, this would have been a very tense moment as Jesus stops underneath this tree, sees Zacchaeus, calls him by his name, invites him to come down so that he could go and stay at his house. There would have been like a hush that came over the crowd because everybody's wondering two things. Number one, why on earth would Jesus invite himself over to this sinner, traitor, thief's house. And the second question they're all wondering is, I wonder what Zacchaeus is going to say. And we get to see the answer. Look at verse 6. So he quickly came down and welcomed Jesus joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. Now notice there's a very polarizing response to this whole thing. First, we get to see that Zacchaeus is overwhelmed by the grace of this invitation. And as a result, he, as the text says, welcomes Jesus joyfully. But not everybody feels that way. The onlookers in this crowd, they are angry, and understandably so. And because of their anger, they begin to complain to one another. And you begin to hear this murmur moving through the crowd that is like, can you believe that this Jesus, this rabbi, has gone to be in the home of a, of a tax collector of all people? And there's an important lesson, I think, embedded in what happens here. See, ultimately, what the story of Zacchaeus is supposed to be is an example of Jesus' tendency to seek out and to save those who are lost, which we'll see Jesus use that language in just a few moments. But what this story tells us is that there's more than one way for us to be lost spiritually. 
There's one that's really obvious, which is like to be in Zacchaeus' situation, where you are just overtly, intentionally living outside of the way in which God has designed you to flourish, okay? You're a sinner in that sense. And I would say, even, even in our culture where a lot of people reject the notion or don't embrace the notion of sin, everyone would agree that being a, a thieving traitor is morally wrong, right? And so if in, in every category, in every sense of the, the word, there's no reason to believe that Zacchaeus is anything other than spiritually lost at this time in his life. But he's not the only one that's lost. The crowd is meant to be a picture of a second way in which we get lost spiritually. They were lost drowning in their own self-righteousness. They looked down on Zacchaeus. They weren't traitors, so they were better than him. They weren't stealing, so they were better than him. They didn't even need to climb a tree to see Jesus, so they were better than him. All of that is an example of this deep-seated self-righteousness that each and every one of us have within our own hearts. And so it's critical that we understand and identify which, which way are we prone to lose our path. Because it's not just in the overt sin, it's also through the sin of self-righteousness. And so all of this is happening, and then something significant happens in verse 8. Notice it says, But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I will pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you read that story carefully, it seems like something kind of weird and jarring happens between verse 7 and 8. Because it ends with Jesus going, hey, come on down, I need to go stay at your house. And then all of a sudden, Zacchaeus is standing there and he's like, I'm going to give everything back and I'm going to pay. You're like, really? Just because Jesus asked to come over? So here's what most likely happened. Most likely, a significant sum of time transpired between verse 7 and verse 8. And we're not given all of the details of this interaction. We're not told anything about what Jesus and Zacchaeus actually talk about. So... They could have had some conversation on the way to Zacchaeus' house or over a meal or after a meal or the next morning. But what matters in the example of Zacchaeus is that he experiences a significant change of desire and life direction. So this is a picture of repentance. Now, repentance, my guess is, is a word that's familiar to many of us. But I find that we have a tendency to conflate repentance and confession. Meaning, we think we have repented if we call some sin in our life sin. And the truth is, repentance and confession are not the same thing. Confession is a part of repentance, but it is not the whole. Repentance is a change of three things. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of behavior. And we see all three take place in the example of Zacchaeus. He feels differently about the sin that he has been committing. And then he chooses in the midst of that feeling to think differently about that sin. And then he chooses to behave differently by giving back so much of what he's actually stolen. This is a picture of repentance. He vows to give 
half of everything he has to the poor and to return four times what he has stolen. Which you need to know, like clearly for Zacchaeus to be in the line of of work that he was in, he must have had a real deep longing for wealth and money. And so to see that had been his deepest longing, and then to see this change that takes place, and he opens his hands and he gives all of this away, there's probably nothing, no greater evidence of what happened inside of him than how he chooses to respond. And so it is important that we do notice, based on what Jesus says here, Zacchaeus is not saved by what he did. What he did proves that healing and change had taken place in his heart. So obedience does not provide us with salvation. That's what we call works-based righteousness. It's the common thread that runs through every religion. You have to do certain things, jump through hoops, live up to a certain level or bar in order to be accepted by some divine being. And that is the antithesis of the message and the way of Jesus. So Zacchaeus is not saved by what he did. He did what he did because he had been healed. Obedience does not provide our salvation, but it does prove it. And what I really want us to see here and to focus our attention on is Jesus. And so notice, as we come out of Zacchaeus' story and bring the same Jesus out of his story into our own, here's what we learn. Jesus knows me completely, invites me gently in order to heal me deeply. And this has everything to do with this deep-seated fear of rejection that some of us live with in relationship with God. Jesus knows us completely, just like he did Zacchaeus. He invites us gently, just like he did Zacchaeus, in order to heal us deeply, just like he did Zacchaeus. And so let's break each of these down just for a second. First, number one, Jesus knows me completely. I believe that when Jesus stopped and saw Zacchaeus up in that tree and called out his name, it signified so much more than Jesus just knowing his name. Again, they hadn't met, so if all it was was Jesus walking by, looking up in the tree, seeing him and knowing, that's Zacchaeus, that would have been a miracle because nobody can do that. But I think it's meant to signify so much, so much more than that. It's meant to signify that Jesus was acquainted with Zacchaeus' full identity, all the converging factors that made him who he was, all of his thoughts, his motivation, his attitudes, his emotional makeup, his decisions that he'd made, his past, his present, even his future. Jesus knew the good, bad, and the gross about Zacchaeus. It was not ignorance that was beneath Jesus' invitation to him. It was grace. And here's what I I mean by that. Um, I don't know about you, but I've had friends that I have shared life with, but I was ignorant of various aspects of their life. Aspects that with time came to the surface and, and hurt me deeply. And had I known that these people were like that. If I had known they had that capacity or in reality, this is the way that they were were, and this is the way that they treated people. Had I known all of that, I never would have trusted them. And some of us think that that's why God tolerates us. 
because he doesn't actually know who we are. He doesn't actually know what we're capable of. He doesn't actually know what we've done and what's been done to us. And he doesn't know because we put on a very good show. But here's the truth. Jesus is intimately aware of it all. And he welcomes you anyways. And that is grace. Jesus does not invite you to himself because he is ignorant regarding how jacked up and wounded you are. He knows all of that. And his arms are open and he says, come. Because of grace. So Jesus knows us completely. And secondly, he invites me gently. Jesus invites me gently. Notice that Jesus does not like walk up to the sycamore tree, grab Danny DeVito by his foot, and yank him out of the tree and go, hey, we're going to your place. He doesn't, he's not harsh with him. He's not militant or mean with him. He invites him to come down. And we need to see the gentle way that Jesus deals with wounded people throughout the scriptures. Because many of us have this view of God that is informed by our parents, by our caregivers, by authority figures, or pastors that we've had in our lives. And as a result, many of us have projected those experiences onto God. And so some of us see God as being very gruff or being impatient or irritable. But in Matthew 11, Jesus says that he is gentle and humble. And over and over and over again in the Gospels, we see these comments of his overwhelming compassion for people. And this story in Luke 19 confirms the gentleness of Jesus. He invites Zacchaeus down. And he invites you to come deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship with him. He doesn't exploit you. He does not coerce you. He will not manipulate you. And he will not force you. He gently invites you to himself. Romans 2.4 tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so... If you're here, and you would admit, and maybe you're even realizing some of it now, like, yeah, I think I have this view of God that he's, like, always mad at me, or that he isn't safe for me, or that my wounds are not welcome in his presence, then what I would invite you to do is maybe, maybe it's time for you to read the Gospels with fresh eyes and an open heart. Just a very slow, it's not like trying to read the whole thing, in a just slow reading, really paying attention to what Jesus is actually like in the Gospels. And read it slow enough that it has time to really seep in and permeate your entire heart. Jesus knows me completely. He invites me gently. And then finally, Jesus heals me deeply. He heals me deeply. Now again, we have no detail regarding the subject matter of the conversation that took place between Jesus and Zacchaeus and ultimately changed him so deeply. And maybe the reason for that is that it was just personal to Zacchaeus, just like the conversation that Jesus wants to have with you is personal to you. What we do know is that Jesus is a healer. We see it take place in Zacchaeus. We see it take places in dozens of spots throughout the Gospels. We see Jesus healing physically and emotionally and spiritually. And it is so important that we come to Jesus as a healer because each and every one of us is wounded. 
And I would argue it is so vital to our ability to relate well with one another and to relate well with God that we would understand that people are wounded. Everyone is. That's why one of my favorite things that's taking place in a lot more modern day storytelling is is much more honesty around like, how do bad guys become bad guys? Because stories used to be told in this very binary way. There was good guys, there was bad guys. The good guy wore white, the bad guy wore black, the good guy was born a hero, the bad guy was born a villain for no reason whatsoever, he just woke up and decided to end the world. And the truth is, that's like just the most simplistic view of human capacity. People are the way they are because of the wounds that they bear. We have to know that about one another, and we have to be honest about the fact that all of us are wounded people, which is why we want formation to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. The big secret is everybody's hurting. It's not just for like super wounded, jacked up people. This is a safe place for all of us to be honest about what has happened to us, why we are the way that we are, and the wounds that we bear and the wounds that we live with. And so the point is, Jesus knows your wounds. He knows them. And he wants to heal them. The question is, will we let him? Because sometimes we've learned to be so self-protective over the place that we have hurt that we aren't willing to give those over to the healing hands of Jesus. And so as we get ready to close this portion of our service, I want to venture a guess. Now, here's my guess. My guess is very little of what I just said comes as like a major surprise to you, meaning that this was not filled with a bunch of new information. My guess is that you have heard at some point, if you've been in church in any capacity, you've probably heard that Jesus knows you. You've probably heard at some point that Jesus is gentle. If you've read the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, in any way, you've probably read about Jesus being a healer. But here's the problem. We, we know these things to be true, but we have not experienced them as such. And this is where the biblical invitation to contemplation is such a gift to us. Because as we take time and we create space to sit with these truths, with time and intention, they have a way of moving into our soul rather than just living as something we profess to believe in our heads. And so I want to close our time by taking a moment just to really contemplate and to sit with the reality of what we have just heard. And so if you are comfortable, I want to invite you to close your eyes again just for a moment. And as you close your eyes, I want to invite you to imagine a place for you that signifies safety. This could be a literal place in your life. It could be a room in your home. It could be a spot in the mountains that you like to sit. It could be a place by the beach. It could be a park. It could be a place that totally is in your imagination, but some place that you that connects with you emotionally as a safe place. And I want you to imagine yourself sitting there with Jesus. And really take a moment and try to pay attention to and take in 
everything about this safe place. What does it sound like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? And to the best of your ability, I want you to imagine Jesus there with you. And as you sit in the presence of Jesus, which we are right now, I want you to hear Jesus call you by name. And as he calls you by name, it isn't just to signify that he knows your name, but know that as he says your name, he knows every single thing about you. And as you sit with what what might feel like the awkwardness of that, I want you to hear Jesus now invite you to himself. To hear him say, come to me. I am gentle and humble. I won't reject you. I won't hurt you. You are safe with me. I want you to hear Jesus ask you if he can hold and begin to heal your wounds. So maybe even right now in this moment, think about some of the most deeply painful wounds that you live with, experiences that you have had, the rejection that you've tasted. And just imagine yourself holding those wounds and giving them into the healing hands of Jesus. And as we take just a moment here before we pray, know that that's exactly what Jesus invites you to. Not just in this moment, but every day. He calls you by name. He invites you to himself. And he says, give me your wounds so that we can work toward healing together. And so before I pray, I want to give you an opportunity for you to pray. Knowing that that's true, what do you want to say to Jesus right now? What does he want to say to you? Maybe this causes you anxiety or fear and you need to confess that and verbalize that to him. Maybe your heart is warming with gratitude. Tell him that. But listen for anything he might want to say to you. Jesus, we thank you that even though you know us completely, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, you still welcome us to yourself. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a gentle shepherd, a gentle king, a gentle authority, a gentle God. That your desire is for our flourishing and for our good.
And we thank you that you are a healer that longs to bring healing to every wound that we live with. And Lord, I just acknowledge that for those of us that have in very deep ways experienced the the sting of rejection and that fear that you might reject us, Lord, you know how scary it is to trust you with our deepest places of hurt. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience you as gentle and humble the way that you said you are in Matthew 11. And more and more, help us to entrust you with the wounds in our life. So we thank you that you know us completely that you invite us gently in order to heal us deeply. We ask that you would continue that healing work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.